welcome to E-Commerce Innovators, a podcast that brings together the brightest minds in the industry to explore innovative strategies and trends in global e-commerce. Our host is John LeBaron, Chief Revenue Officer at Pattern, the premier partner for global e-commerce acceleration. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining the show today. My name is John LeBaron. I'm the Chief Revenue Officer at Pattern, and we are thrilled to invite Ian Stewart, he is the Chief Marketing and Digital Officer of Tom Shoes, here to the show today. And we have a lot of questions for you today. I've been doing a lot of research on the brand, on your career, and it's fascinating. And I think every one of our listeners is going to learn a lot from this conversation today. So Ian, do you want to just do a quick introduction on you and tell us what you do? Yeah. Hey, thanks, John. Hey, everybody. Thanks for, thanks for listening. Thanks for having me. Yep, Ian Stewart. As you may have guessed already, I'm Australian. I've been in the US for the last 10 years and I've spent my entire career outside of Australia. I graduated from undergrad business school and went up to Asia to get a couple of years of experience. Told my family I'll be back in one or two years and haven't been back since. I kept moving along. So we'll talk a little bit about the, the journey that I've been on the companies and the countries and the roles and, and the learnings and stuff. But it's ended me at, as the CMO and Chief Digital Officer at Tom's. We're based in Los Angeles. I live in Santa Barbara. Because I joined during the pandemic, so there was no reason to move. And here we are today talking about that. I love it. I think when we explore a little bit more about your role, we were chatting before the show, and I think there's a really interesting divergence that's happening in the role of CMO, and especially with the rise of e-commerce, how that is, is also coming into play. So I think we'll get to that. But I wanted to spend this first part chatting about where you kind of grew up in your career. And I think one of the things that struck me when I was looking, chatting about who we would want to have on the show was your background. We've made a lot of investments in Southeast Asia. And many times I think about Asia, China specifically, but honestly, anywhere in that whole world as a little bit of a harbinger. Sometimes I think in the US, we have this ethnocentric viewpoint of like, oh, we do it best or or we're a cutting edge. But truly, when you go look at what's happening in Asia, I think that's bleeding edge, right? And a lot of times when people ask me questions like, where is e-commerce going? I almost always point back to this is where it's going. Just look, if you want to see where the US is going to be, go look at where Asia already is. And then we're, you know, we're going to be five or 10 years behind them. So tell us a little bit about how that, A, kind of growing up in Australia, but then also spending such a, a formative part of your career in Southeast Asia, how that impacted you, what it looked like, and how it shaped your kind of approach to problem solving and career growth. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because now Asia is so hot for all things digital and gaming and, and e-com. And, and before that, it was in mobile. And, and even before that, when I went up, it was just in the movement of the consumer and business. So I graduated, as I said, from undergrad business school in, in Sydney. And back then in the early 90s, Asia was just beginning to really open up. And I thought it'd be really good to get up there and get two years experience so I could be two years ahead of everybody else when they discovered Asia and come back to Australia and have practical Asian in-market experience. So I went up and got a job in Thailand and with a market research company, which then sent me to Indonesia and then they sent me to Hong Kong. So I started moving around. It was just fascinating. I was there for the opening up of Vietnam and before the curtain went up and was up in China before all the brands were handed back by the government and just doing all sorts of really curious research about brands and Western brands and how to make them relevant in Asia and Asian brands and what Asian consumers want and local versus global and 
just all of that stuff. And I was really lucky in, in my research career to be mainly working for Coca-Cola. And when my client contact moved on to another part of the company, they offered me the chance to go client side, which I did, which was kind of the jump from agency to client. So then I was like running the, the teams across North Asia and then from there jumped across to MTV where I added marketing and then shared research and ended up you know, going through for the rest of the 20 years in marketing, but grounded in research and insights and grounded in being always a stranger in the countries I lived in from Hong Kong, moved to Singapore and back to Thailand and then back to Singapore and then up to Shanghai before moving to the US. So I've always been on the move. It's been amazing. And I've always worked for iconic brands that are trying to work out the, the mix of being a global brand versus being locally relevant. I love that. And a lot of stuff to dig into on that front. I would say maybe we'll just take a second and focus on that piece of these iconic brands, right? MTV, Converse, right? Like help us understand how working for those types of companies, because I think Again, as someone who worked at Apple for a minute, right? Like what you see on the outside and then you kind of get to see behind the curtain as well. So there's always that aspect. But truly, for the most part, you're working with very, very talented people because those types of brands attract. And when we think about innovation in all senses of the word, right? Those companies a lot of times tend to be pushing the envelope as it relates to innovation. So just help us understand how working for those innovative companies shaped a, your professional growth, but also your personal culture of innovation. You know, companies like Apple, I worked at Nike, worked at MTV, and then more recently, you know, leading marketing at UGG and, and now at Tom's. The reason that the big brands are successful is I think they know what their DNA is. They, they know what it is that makes them who they are, and they know how to take that around the world consistently, but also locally. So there's kind of two dimensions. Who are we? What's our DNA? And how do we hang on to that? But how do we localize it? Versus saying it's one size fits all, which is not the case, or it's 88 sizes fits every 88 countries, which is also not the case. So it's getting that mix right, number one. And I think DNA is critical to growing a brand. Who, wh why are you who you are? But then the second thing is achieving growth by knowing how to extend and iterate. And I think particularly in footwear and fashion, you see a lot of brands just like making everything. We'll make all the things that people wear. And that's not always a successful path. I think that knowing what your DNA is and then knowing how to extend and iterate that extending the icon versus making new things. Brands like Nike do it really well and then Apple do it really well. And we were lucky to come to Converse when Nike brought Converse back and we analyzed what it is that makes Converse Converse. And then we, we didn't rest on that. We then iterated and extended it every year, but remained true to the core and taking that principle across to UGG, who had lost its way to somewhat as a brand and resetting what it meant to be UGG as a brand but then it making it relevant for today and then extending and iterating it into interesting directions in adjacent categories and now doing the same at Tom's. So innovation for me is knowing who you are, what's your DNA, and then how to extend it properly. Yeah, I love that. I think it was Steve Jobs or maybe even Tim Cook, honestly, that was talked about how you can almost tell more about the culture and about that innovation by the things that you say no to right. and the things that you do say yes to. And so... Yeah, it's kind of interesting. And maybe that is a little bit of a canary in the coal mine, right? When you start losing the discipline to say no, and you yeah. start to open the aperture a little bit too far. And I don't know if you're comfortable or willing to speak to that, but you've kind of been at the rise and fall of some of those brands as well. And maybe some of those people getting a little bit distance from the DNA that you mentioned. Any any comments on any of that or how what you kind yeah. of learned that experience? Yeah. 
for sure. I actually worked at MTV twice. I, I went there and I uh, had a great time, left um, for family reasons and had an agency and came back to MTV. So the first time I was there, it was all music. Like we would just, there was music blaring and it was all music videos and the whole internal team were just so psyched every Monday for the new releases from the labels and doing all those supporting sort of extensions into concerts and artists and Merch and so it was amazing because it was the true, it was the M, the music bit of MTV. Yeah. And I left and had an agency, and MTV was still my client. And when I came back, they'd lend into the TV bit. So it was all, you know, reality TV and uh-huh. non music content because they thought that was the way to extend the brand. But what they lost was the M bit, the music bit. <laughs> and it's, I always say that know your DNA. If MTV had stuck to the M, not the TV bit, then I think it would still be a global youth icon like it was when I was there the first time. So I think that's a good example of just not really understanding the true reason that people gravitate towards you as a brand. Converse as well, rock and roll spirit, creativity, extending that into skateboarding, extending that into art, knowing that the core of the core of the core of Converse is the black chuck. So celebrating that as the, as the icon of all icons and, and loving it and, and appreciating that. And then extending and iterating respectfully versus just launching a whole bunch of different things you know i was there when we launched jeans and jeans didn't work because what license does a brand like converse have to make denim but we, we did every sort of variation and permutation on the chuck winter chucks and summer chucks and low chucks and high chucks and boot chucks and stuff so taking that learning across into other brands and asking just really basic questions what what do we have the license to produce and you do better i think as a brand when you do less better like do the things that are true to you brand and do more of that and do less of the stuff that doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Well, maybe before we go too far down a path on the Tom's shoes, because we honestly could do the entire podcast on that front, but maybe just thinking for yourself, what is the Ian Stewart DNA, right? Like what, and, and this is hard, right? Because it's like, I think our listeners are always craving and curious to like, what can I implement? What can I learn? How can I implicitly DNA is something you can't really change. So maybe some of the things, maybe we could split this up in terms of like the DNA, I guess, that you talk about as a metaphor, which truly you could change, right? And the stuff that you've probably learned. I, I, the most successful people I talk to are the people who realized early on in their careers, like, this is just who I am. Let's lean into the things I'm really actually naturally God-given talents that I can lean into and then let's not try to kind of change what maybe I'm not as good at anyway. And I'm just going to lean in truly into my own DNA as well as kind of the theoretical DNA of the construct of who you are. So what do you feel like some of the things are that have made you you and the things that you try to kind of lean into as you go into any new adventure or career? Yeah, thank you. And I think you can only really answer that as you get older and realize you can't be all things to all people and you can't be an expert in everything. So admitting and knowing what you do do okay and what things you don't do so well is a key step. I've got a 23-year-old son and I bet if you asked him that question, he wouldn't know where to start because he's just starting his life. But I think over time you, you do start to realize and you, and you get repetitive and people on my team hear me say things all the time like do less better. Like I really believe that we try and particularly in the US culture of growth to do more, add more, grow more, you know, do this, do that, do all the things. And I think doing less things is a really successful model in life. And doing less better, like in my personal life, as an example, I only have one hobby and I've only ever had one hobby my entire life, which is surfing. So I haven't been distracted in the winter to go skiing and I haven't also got a garage full of mountain bikes and fishing equipment. And all the th- I've only got like 
35 surfboards <laughs> and 10 wetsuits because all I want to do is do that as best I can and yeah. anything else I do is a distraction from doing that better than I did yesterday. So I'm trying to apply that in, into work as well. I'm always wanting to strip stuff back and do less, do less, do less and, and ask like what are the three things of the 100 things that are really going to make a difference? Then the second part of my DNA is it's just being simple. I think the world's too complex. We always look for the most complex solutions to things. I think that the simple thing, the simple insight, the simple basic human truth, uh, it's all there in front of us if we don't aim to be making things too complex. The simple stuff works. The simple stuff that just makes you like raise your eyebrows and go, wow, why didn't I think of that? Or isn't that that's just so easy to understand? Yeah. I think the world's too complex and I think we do too much. Yeah. It's a very kind of Zen feeling, but to your earlier point, like that truly is at the heart of doing something well is by focusing on what really distilling it down to its essence. And I think a lot of times speaking clearly is a function of thinking clearly and acting clearly is a function of thinking clearly as well. And so I think that rationalization, well, I don't often have CMOs on the podcast. And so I'm going to take this and feel free to demur and we can go straight into the Tom's piece. But I think in terms of structuring it for the the audience as we go into the Tom's portion specifically, one thing that's fascinating to me, having grown up, and we talked about this a little bit before, but kind of having grown up in a world where the notion of the competency of a CMO was truly undulating because the world under which, you know, what a CMO looked like in the 90s and the 80s is very different than what a CMO looks like today. And I think as a result of that, the CMO is kind of one of the shortest tenured executive positions. I remember when I got hired at Pattern, I said to my CEO, like, hey, the average I think at that time was around 18 months of a CMO is like, I think part of that reason is everyone thinks they can do marketing and people don't always know what a good marketer needs to do. And in truth, there are a lot of different flavors of a CMO, right? And I say there are like the demand gen type of CMOs, there are product marketing type CMOs, there are corporate comm and PR types of CMOs, there are brand and advertising types of CMOs. And there's not one that's better than the other, but truly... To, to have all of those competencies is very, very rare in any executive. In fact, in my, I don't know, 20 years, it's like, I don't know that I've ever seen any CMO that kind of had all the things. You kind of, you kind of lean toward one. And I think with your background in research, in agencies, in mm-hmm. branding, I mean, where would you kind of categorize yourself and where are the things that kind of have served you as you've gone through your own arc of, of journey yeah. and undulation that I talked about? Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. And, and I think that one of the things about what you were just saying is, you know, CMOs with short tenure is they often get fired and they get fired because one of the pieces in the CMO puzzle wasn't in their skill set, their toolbox. And yeah. so I think clarifying exactly when you come into a CMO role, like, how am I being measured? And let me tell you where I'm strong, but also let me tell you where I'm probably not going to deliver yeah. as much. And, and being clear, because from what I've seen, that CMO that does get fired is because they missed something. And to your point, the CMO role now is really, really complex because if you cut it maybe into four simple slices, there's the brand piece, like how do I make this brand beautiful and loved and coveted and, and make people aware of it? So there's that that bit at the top of the funnel and that includes all the brand comms and the PR and the content and the storytelling. You've got the insights piece, which is what does the consumer even want? Like what's the simple insight that we're going to activate here? And, and that's often a big missing link because insights typically is not seen as marketing. So it's a different skill. I've been fortunate that I started there and jumped the fence 
yeah. both sides. So I didn't also jumped across and shed insights because I felt I had enough grounding. But there's that piece, like, what, what are we trying to do here based on what insight? Then, it, as you mentioned, the third slice is product. Like, what are we making? Why? What aren't we making? Why? How are we celebrating what we're making and bringing yeah. that back to the DNA conversation? And product marketers used to be a specialist thing and you, you, you'd learn product marketing working in an FMCG company like a Coke mm-hmm. or Pepsi or Unilever and, and not everybody has that rigor of, of bringing a product to market. But the fourth slice, which I think is where a lot of CMOs get unstuck because the world has changed so much in the last five years compared to the, probably the 25 years that a person moves through to become a CMO yeah. is the growth piece. It's, it's the lower funnel. It's the turning all of those other three slices into sales and being accountable for those sales and being able to measure those sales and being able to represent those other three slices based on this insight, this brand activation up the top and knowing how to bring a product to market. I've delivered you this conversion that led to this revenue with this ROAS. That's, that's new territory. And it's often a, but it's a piece of the CMO puzzle that you've got to admit as a CMO with 30 years experience in your late forties, I didn't learn this in my career journey. I didn't learn lower funnel marketing. So what I'm going to do is build a team around me and an agency support beside me who is shit hot in this area because that's not what I learned. And being able to say that, and, you know, we're private equity owned at Tom's and if I get fired tomorrow, it'll be because of that fourth slice, not delivering the other three into really tangible revenue with really tangible data that's Uh going to tell you what we are or aren't doing properly. So that's what keeps me up at night. Yeah, I love it. And and I love the vulnerability and I love the honesty. And, And I think that's just the world that we live in, honestly, as marketers. And I kind of went through that same journey, you know, and at some point my CEO tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, I need you to go run sales as well. I want you to be the chief revenue officer. And I said, great. The only problem is I've never run sales. So this actually could be a very bad idea. And um, I think that's part of, it's kind of a hallmark, honestly, of, of a modern marketer is the ability to kind of shoulder more expectation, more accountability, more transparency, and do that in a way where you can still hold all the goodness that you've learned and developed in your own career, as well as in the new dispensation. I think in my defense of the four slices, I think you can build a team of growth marketers and agencies underneath you. So, And that's a relatively new era of marketing. It's a relatively new skill set. So I think admitting that you're not like grounded in your career in growth marketing is probably an important thing to get on the table. You can also have a great insights and strategy department beside you, and you should know the fundamentals. And I think any marketer that doesn't understand the basics of insights is missing something. You can build up a great product marketing team beside you who've come up through the ranks of the Nikes and the Apples and the FMCG brand. But I think the one thing that the CMO has to have is an intuitive understanding of what it means to make a brand, to get attention, to get awareness, to get a brand loved and coveted and inspiring. And again, in my defense, because that's where I spent a lot of my career, I think that I'd rather work if I became a CEO with a CMO that had brand experience. How do you make this brand loved? versus someone who's like really deep in the numbers and the data and stuff, because I think that that's a a skill that is very transactional. I want to have someone who really understands the essence of what a brand is. So, Well, and I I just love it. Again, I don't want to go too far down a path on this, but you'd much rather have someone, I think, to your point, like that understands the consumer, that understands the brand, that has a craft in building in that narrative, maintaining that narrative. Because truly like, that is what is why customers are coming to you. You can fix and cover for a lot of the metrics and you can get lost in it. But if you start there, 
yep. you're absent the other, like you're just never going to get there. So right. yeah, it's, it's so important and that's great. So let's move on to Tom's then. I mean, you're now the chief marketing and digital officer at Tom's. What does that mean? What can you tell us about Tom's and, and your current role there? Yeah, for sure. So I was really attracted to the extreme challenge of Tom's in the same way that I was attracted to the extreme challenge of, of turning UG around. UG was a brand that needed to be turned around because it was sort of sitting in a bit of a negative space and had a bit of a lingering negative um, brand association. But underneath it, it had a beautiful product of with sheepskin that just needed to be celebrated and brought to life, which is what I learned from Converse. Celebrate the core of what you are with the Chuck Taylor and now with the UG brick, make it modern. Tom's was a very, very different challenge. It's a brand that everybody knows, massive awareness, and everybody loves. And everybody remembers from the early days of coming out of the gate from the side door with purpose and giving and buy one, give one, and and the charisma of Blake, the founder. And there was just so much great stuff about Tom's, and and particularly now in the world of everybody wanting to be more purposeful and make more impact and do more good. You look at some brands like Tom's as the original purpose brand. So that was attractive. But when you lifted the lid, the giving model was antiquated and it wasn't really resonating with the younger generation, the giving of one for one. And the product itself hadn't been updated and modernized and, and made fashion relevant for today's consumer. So while the brand Halo was great, what we talked about before with, with brands, but the underneath that wasn't delivering, the giving model wasn't, wasn't landing and the product wasn't landing. So I thought that was a great opportunity to, to come across and, and help reset that. I also did so because our CEO... Magnus is a product guru who I'd worked with in several different companies. He's a 25-year Nike veteran through the product product creation engine, not product marketing. So I knew that he'd come in and fix the product side. We have an incredible chief giving officer, Amy Smith, who had shepherded Tom's through the evolution from giving shoes to grants. And, and you know, I'll talk a little bit about that, but we're doing a lot of giving and, and I'm a simplifier, as I said. So working with Amy to simplify that model and update it was appealing. And then me coming in as the as the spoke that was going to make the brand sort of relevant for today with the right stories was an incredible challenge. As I mentioned, we're private equity owned. We came into the brand as the brand sort of would hit the skids in 2019 and was sold through and new owners that were looking for new leadership coming with category experience and we spent 2020 just really reflecting on what it is we were going to shed, stop doing, what it is we're going to continue doing but with a new face and, and what we're going to start doing in new ways. So that was 2020 and we relaunched the brand in 2021 in April and we can dig into some of the things behind that and we've turned the corner. We were recording the first growth in nearly 10 years and, and we're going to hit the first profit in nearly as long as well and moving into 22 with great growth trajectory now. So. I love it. Well, and when our audience actually hears this, it will be 22. You'll be well on your way. So you kind of, from what I could listen in and glean on, you've made changes to the impact model. You've changed kind of overall brand and creative direction, as well as the product innovation pipeline and strategy. I don't know if there's any additional things you kind of want to dig in on that front, especially in your world of what that's meant to the brand? Did it it require additional research from your end? Did it require uh, just more curation and being ruthlessly cutting stuff down? Like help us understand the process that to the degree you're able to share that that rationalization look like. We were lucky that the new owners were open to changing absolutely everything because we intended to lift every single rock and potentially change everything. So with that intent in mind, we weren't holding on to anything at all other than the halo of the awareness of the brand. And the biggest thing really we, we dug into was, was that impact model, the giving model. But to step back, you know, in, in terms of the sequencing of it all, 
footwear takes over 70 weeks to, to from creation and conception all the way through to, to on shelf 77 75 72 depending on, on the brand so the first thing that had to get reset because of that timeline was product so magnus was in there and and he did what we spoke about which is what is the dna of the product of the slip on alpagata that that really had lost its relevance Slip-ons are fine. Everybody still wears them. There's many brands that have got successful slip-on businesses, but the particular construction that wasn't that comfortable, it wasn't that cushioned, it was very, very tight and around the feet. It was it was very from the 90s, but it had DNA. It had elements, physical, visual elements to the shoe itself that make it different from other slip-ons. And it had some basic principles that <clears throat> bagged us modernized. And we brought the first of those modernizations with that 70-week delay from thinking about it to bring it to market. This June this of 2021 with the Alpagata Mallow, which was a modern version of the slip-on Alpagata for women. And then in July, the Alpagata or the Alp Rover for men. And if you check out either of those, the Mallow or the Rover, you'll see that it's the same, same, but different. It's modern construction, modern material, modern width and height and colors, but it's still recognizable as a Tom. So that's back to the DNA. What makes it recognizable? How do we modernize it? So did that. So that was all in play. I came in uh, the middle of last year in 2020, and then we dug about into two things, the brand and the impact. So I'll pause here just to let you catch up and then I can dive into either the brand and e-com journey we, we went on or the, and or the impact journey. Well, I mean, I guess just reflecting on it, first, congratulations. I think it's great. It's always overwhelming and intimidating to kind of go in there. And to our earlier point, like it can be very vulnerable, but you kind of have to swing for the fences, right? You don't really have the luxury of going halfway and saying, well, let's just keep a few sacred cows here that we know probably aren't working and let's do the rest. And I think it's, I admire so much of these brand leaders and many of them are unsung heroes, right? That I work with every day. And when we talk about e-commerce acceleration, it often requires hard dismantling or disruption of distribution networks or who I've been selling to or who I've allowed to start selling on e-commerce and what it's doing to the price and what it's doing to brand control. And and again, even if you know that the cancer is kind of spread, it can be hard to be like, I'm just going to whatever, cut off the arm and go. It's like, well, can we just start with a finger or like, you know, and, and I think it's, Again, I'm always so impressed because it's easy from the outside, someone like us to say like, this is what you have to do. This is what good looks like. Very different for the person in the seat saying, if I do this and it doesn't go the right way, I'm out, right? right. And not only I'm out, but like it, it could affect our distributors, our, our partner, really, our channel partners. We've spent decades cultivating and bringing up. These are people who really help build our business. And so like the collateral damage that can happen by making bold moves on both the upside and the downside is pretty significant. And, and so I just wanted to kind of call that out because it's, it's sometimes lost. And I think the second thing is just when you're an innovator, which the original Tom's founder and, and CEO, right? Like it's, you're kind of ahead of your time, right? And then when you catch on and people realize, like, I didn't know this was missing, but wow, this is, this is amazing. The copycats are sure to follow, right? And that, that process, even though you said 70 weeks, like it's, it's shocking to me how fast people are able to turn and copy a model, whether it's a giving model, whether it's a product innovation model, whether it's a brand model, and truly flock to and kind of rip off that. So I think that absolutely happened with Tom's. Again, from afar, you can see yeah. all the people that tried to race and A, you're ahead of your time, but then other people kind of come in and innovate on that and kind of copy it as well. So it, it's tricky. So yeah, maybe let's just tackle both of them if that's okay. Let's, let's start with what is the evolution of the impact model 
And then let's dive deeper into, especially around e-commerce and yeah. working on what's being implemented. That'd be great. Yeah, for sure. I, I think you've got to come in and, and dig deep into your experiences and, and know what the playbook is that you're working on here. So I think it helps to have, have had done some brand growth, some brand turnarounds before for all, all the, the leadership team. You've got to be extremely confident and stick to guns. We have a saying at Tom's that you know, the strategy is baked. It's now about execution. We're not changing the strategy. We'll tweak the execution. So sticking to that with confidence, but also knowing that if it doesn't work, you're accountable and you may, may well get fired. So don't, don't make decisions out of out of fear of being fired. Make decisions that they're the right ones and and go for it. So you know, just getting to impact in a second, but, you know, we reset product and are true to the DNA and we have a great product pipeline coming into 22 and we're now already working on, on spring, summer 23, given those 70 week timelines. So product, product roadmap is, is reset and from the brand side. The brand was, was feeling old and, and, and dusty and tired and a little bit aged. So we came in and we reset our approach to the creative direction. We worked with a great agency called Red Antler over in New York who helped you know navigate carrying forward some of our branding and logo stuff, but also shedding a lot and adding some new elements as well, which was which was super exciting. Reset our approach to photography, making it younger and really importantly, more diverse, more real, not using just models, but using people that came from the social impact space with great stories to tell, yeah. adding some color and vibrancy and energy to our brand direction. We use the pandemic as an opportunity to accelerate our e-com plans to rebuild our website. We had had a plan working with a great agency called Astound E-commerce to over two years, rebuild our website over many phases. We compressed that down to four months. They, they said, you know, we said to them, could we do the two-year project in four months? And they said, well, instead of weekly meetings, let's do them daily, but you've got to be prepared to make decisions on a daily basis. And we said, yeah. let's do it. So we built a, built a two-year website in four months and had that set for early in 2021, which is critical because our wholesale business disappeared for a moment and our e-com business uh, exploded. So we were well placed for that with our web and mobile experience. So they're all the things that are playbook, you know, resetting product because there was experience there, resetting the brand, the creative direction, the website. We had playbooks and experience and agency partners. But getting to the final piece, resetting impact took a lot of brave decision-making because we were gonna, we shared something we invented and are famous for. And as you said, we're emulated by so many brands, often with our guidance. But we knew that the world had changed. The pandemic had had really told us that people were looking at impact and giving in community in new different ways. We particularly wanted to start driving our impact into domestic markets so that we could support our local communities, starting with Los Angeles, where our office is, and, and building out from there. We wanted our model to be more flexible and transparent. So rather than just giving shoes, buying a shoe, giving a shoe, we wanted to to really like make it a really clear model which is that we give a third of our profits to grassroots good. That The third is very, very transparent. The more we make and sell, the more we can give. So help us to buy our, you know, buy our shoes so we can give more. And, and giving to grassroots good particularly means that we can support the smaller end of, of where the need is, the smaller nonprofits, the smaller foundations that are doing good at a grassroots level in areas that we can shift and move around from, but in particular around access to opportunity and mental health. And these are issues that may not have been as relevant and top of mind 16 years ago when the company started, but they are relevant now and even more so with the pandemic and just moving as the world is right now. So it was a good time to change it. It was a big decision to make. There was a lot of people wanting to hang on to what they thought was the DNA of the brand, but the DNA of Tom's is not giving one for one. The DNA of Tom's is giving. Yeah. So we updated the giving piece of it to make it more relevant. We updated the product to make it more relevant. We updated the brand to make it more relevant. Unveiled that with a little bit of fear in April. 
that people would say you guys are lunatics for changing what you're famous for. And we said the same thing. We're not famous. It's not, it's not the, the model we're famous for, although we did invent it. We're famous for giving a big amount of what we make back to the community. And working for Tom's feels like you're working for a nonprofit. We're not afraid to say we want to make profit, but it feels like we're a giving company. So I love that. Well, I know we only have a handful of minutes left here. I think one of the challenges, especially, well, in some cases, the pandemic has made it even easier to connect with customers because like mm-hmm. no one's really was, was in stores, at least for a time that's starting to rebound, of course. But maybe you just talk about that lifeline to the customer, right? When you're changing impact models and you're changing the brand, when you're changing everything, there's no shortage probably of feedback you're getting from customers. But at the same time, the world is changing around the way we're, we're able to connect with customers, the way we're able to market to customers. And you look at what's happening from social, from privacy, yep. all these other kind of aspects that are going to truly kind of change the way we go to market with customers and how yep. we're relevant to them and how we personalize everything. I mean, what are you doing kind of personally in your own professional career to kind of innovate on that front as you see this new wave coming uh, there's web 3.0 there's yeah. the metaverse i mean there's there's station and all this other stuff happening like what are you guys doing to stay maybe ahead of that and truly stay again as authentic as possible and and keep grounded yeah gosh i mean that, that's the thing of all the things that have worked for us and, and helped us navigate through seeing the impact model with a great reaction it's the right thing to do it's really resonating well with our, our partners and customers and and our consumers so you know that piece is is going well our product is resonating well we're getting great sell through for this new dna and you know extended and iterated products the website's working well the, the photography is working well the social channels are working well but yeah just cutting through in the digital marketplace because as you mentioned the apple privacy facebook the change of the algorithms the, the, the rising costs of CPMs, the, the new channels like TikTok coming, having to go out as we were laughing before about and manually buying banners on sites like we used to do in the good old days four years ago. That's been the hardest thing. And our conversion has been great this year. Getting people to the site's been the challenge, traffic, finding traffic, not capping our spend. We, we don't just keep spending to chase. We know the, the diminishing returns. So traffic's been our biggest issue for the year. But most of it has been macro created, all those things we just talked about and supply chain and delays of inventory and losing inventory. We lost three containers this year off ships that were racing through the ocean to get to the US. Now they're all sitting in the ports. We've had factory fires. We've had to shift factories from one country to the next because of the pandemic. So it's been the year of getting the house in order, which we have. So I think the stuff we can control, we're feeling good about. And then honestly, when we talk about our results for this year, which have been double-digit growth and we've turned the first profit but we didn't achieve as much as we thought we might. And how could you ever know what you're going to achieve in a year of so much volatility? Yeah. But all of our analysis of how we got to, with a few days left of the year, how we got to where we got to, it's, it's all macro. And that's new to my career. Like I, I've never had a, a year like this year where the yeah. bulk of the miss or the bulk of the shift in expectations have been completely out of our control. How do you control container ships overloading and then losing containers? factory fires and having to shift halfway through a production run from one country to the next. So that's, yeah, a lot of patience. Well, that seems to be the recurring theme. Ian, it was an absolute pleasure to meet you and to have you on the show. I'm sure our listeners learn as much as I did during this brief exchange. But first of all, just congratulations. And uh, what a stellar career you've had and what a great impact you're making on the business of Tom's. 
Again, I've learned a lot from you today and I hope we get a chance to rub shoulders or maybe show yeah. up on surfboards in Santa Barbara at some point. Thank you, John. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks everyone for listening. 